try something new today, inspired by Ben's scripture. I have a little laptop and a PowerPoint here. So it should come up in just a moment. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 11. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the chance to come here together. Uh, relatively free of persecution. We thank you for that freedom. We don't want to take it for granted. At all times, please help us to be aware of what you've done for us, the fact that you've given us your word, you've given us your access to your spirit so that we can understand your word and that it can impact our lives. Today, as we look through this story, help us to to gain an intimate understanding of the story and keep it in our minds so that it can impact the way that we live day to day. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to begin in 2 Kings chapter 11. And what I want to do is we're reading these, these two chapters, chapter 11 and 12, and I want to read through them, making maybe a few comments so that we get a good understanding of the story so that we we clearly understand all the details of the story and what it's telling us. And then we'll go back and take a look at uh, perhaps some some applications that we can take from it, some some lessons we can see in our own personal lives. So let's start by reading uh, verses one through three of chapter 11. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah, so that he was not killed. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years, when Athaliah reigned over the land. So this brings up immediate questions, at least for me, uh, questions such as who's Athaliah, who's Ahaziah, who's Jehoshaphat, who's Joram and who's Joash. Right. So we're going to take a look at that. And I think it's also important, especially in some of these Kings and Chronicles types type books that we understand uh, maybe chronologically as well. What, what, what period of time this is occurring. And I think it's also good to start building a framework of where these things were taking place. Uh, as far as geography is concerned. These are some things that I've recently been uh, taking an interest in to, to sort of see the picture of the Bible as a bigger a, a bigger story, right? Rather than to look at one tiny little in, isolated incident and, and see it by itself, to see where that fits into the picture of God's word. So I'm going to bring you along with that. So let's start by looking at some of these questions of who these people are, uh, because these names are familiar uh, to some of us that read through the Old Testament, Ahaziah, Joram, Joash. But it can get a little confusing sometimes because there's more than one of these people in some instances. And so we need to uh, take a little glance at sort of the family tree here of what's been going on. Hopefully this adds a little clarity rather than take some of it away. But we'll walk through it nice and slow here. Uh, so the first question is, who's Athaliah? We're, to- we're told elsewhere in the scripture that she is the, grands- uh, the granddaughter of one of the kings of Israel, Omri. So Omri had the evil king Ahab, and Ahab gave birth to Athaliah. Athaliah 
married King Joram of Judah. Okay, so now she is in the Judah column. She's moved out of the Israel column into the Judah column. They had King Ahaziah. So the way this this is uh, working here from top to bottom is the order of the kings, right? So even though Ahaziah was born um, of Athaliah, she's below him because she became a ruler after, after him. So that Ahaziah is not to be confused with Ahab's other child, Ahaziah, Athaliah's brother, right? So Athaliah has a son named Ahaziah and a brother named Ahaziah, one in Israel and one in Judah. Joram has another uh, child, Jehoshaphat, not necessarily with Athaliah. We don't see any indication that Athaliah is the mother of Jehoshaphat uh, in the scripture. And that makes uh, Jehoshaphat Ahaziah's sister, which we have in our first three verses here. Joram came from King Jehoshaphat, uh, who was born of King Asa. Now that Joram is not to be confused with Ahab's other son, Joram, also Athaliah's brother. So Athaliah's two brothers, uh, she has a brother, Joram, and she marries a Joram. She has a brother, Ahaziah, and she gives birth to an Ahaziah. So as we read through the scriptures, some of this can be very confusing when the names are simply uh, put out there and we don't quite see what's going on with them. Ahaziah, we'll read later in uh, the story here, marries uh, or at least has a child with someone named Zibia, and his name is Joash. Okay, so Joash is the, the main person that we're going to be looking at here, which makes Jehoshaphat his aunt. Uh, Jehu is going to be mentioned in a moment. Now, this is an important part here. Jehu uh, comes is raised up by God uh, to clean out the evil uh, that King Ahab's line had been bringing on the land. So King uh, Jehu um, kills uh, Joram and Ahaziah, right? So kind of wiping both kings out there. Um, and that's what we see here. Uh, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead and she arose, right? So that was Jehu's doing. And so then Athaliah uh, comes to reign in Judah and Jehu comes to reign in Israel. Um and he also has a grandson named Joash, which is not the Joash of our story. Uh, but we're going to be looking mostly at the Joash of Judah. So where is this happening as far as the bigger picture of the Bible was concerned in time? Well, around 1010 B.C. is when David became the king of the United Kingdom uh, of, of Israel and Judah there. Uh, Solomon was king in 970. The kingdom divided in 930. And we have various kings in between there. And this story is taking place around 835 Um, on our familiar map here of of the land. Our story is taking place here in the kingdom of Judah. All right. Hope some of you gained something from that. Uh, And if that if you got lost in there, just come back now and we'll start talking about the verses themselves. Uh, So here, Athaliah sees her opportunity to take over. Right. To, to come into uh, into rule here in Judah. But it's worth noting that Athaliah is playing a bigger role uh, than simply serving herself in what we call the cosmic battle, because the Lord had already promised to David that he would always have a king on the throne. And, and we know there's also many prophecies about the redemption of his people through David's line. So Athaliah's attempt here to destroy the royal heirs. Uh, is is very directly the work of Satan trying to snuff out that Davidic line to prevent uh, that Redeemer from coming. Uh, 
So the next character we're going to see introduced here is all the way on the right hand side there, uh, Jehoiada. He's the priest, uh, the, the husband of Jehoshaphat and Joash's uncle. And we're going to read about him, uh, starting in verse four. In the seventh year of Athaliah's reign, Jehoiada sent and brought captains of hundreds of the bodyguards and the escorts and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. And he made a covenant with them and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. So seven years have gone by from the time little baby Joash was taken, which makes him no longer a baby, right? Seven years old is still quite young, but now now maybe he's old enough that we can show him uh, to, to these other uh, troops and the captains and start to take him uh, to where he belongs as, as king. But also in our, our parallel passage, which we'll be drawing from Second uh, Chronicles 23 and 24, we see that it says Jehoiada strengthened himself. There's two possible ways to understand that. One is that he was doing something very, very uh, nerve wracking. Right. He's going to overthrow evil, evil queen Athaliah takes a bit of courage, I would imagine. But also that it might have taken him some of this time to get a feel for who was on his side. So perhaps actual strength in numbers. Right. He gathers the captains uh, of hundreds together. So he's strengthening himself, building his courage and building his support. And then in verse five, then he commanded them, saying, this is what you shall do. One third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall be keeping watch over the king's house. One third shall be at the gate of Sir and one third at the gate of the escorts. You shall keep the watch of the house, lest it be broken down. The two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king. But you shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hand. And whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. So the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. Each of them took his men uh, who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going to be off duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. So a seven year old is likely not very hard to kill if you're ruling over a land. So we have strategic placement here of all these various troops to protect Joash as they're preparing for this uh, overthrowing of the throne. But also we see these these shifts going on and off duty. So until the last minute, everyone's acting normal. Right? They're going about their regular duties rather than Athaliah looking out of the palace and saying, I wonder why there's hundreds and hundreds of guards with weapons standing over there at the temple. Right. Everyone's going about their duties until the last moment when they all come together. And verse 10 says the priest gave the captains of hundreds the spears and shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. Now, this is the first indication we'll see, strong indication, that Athaliah didn't have a lot of support to be the ruler of the land. These items left over from King David in the temple would have been something that she would have destroyed and gotten rid of. We see in Second Chronicles that her sons actually did break into the temple and took some of the items out. So the fact that the priests were able to continue their, their duties in the temple and were able to protect these items gives us this idea that Athaliah didn't have a lot of support. Verse 11, the escorts stood, every man with his weapons in hand, all around the king from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple by the altar and the house. And he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. Uh, They made him king and anointed him. They clapped their hands and said, long live the king. 
Verse 13. Now, now when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. When she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar, according to, to custom, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Athaliah tore her clothes and cried out, treason, treason. Not that we would credit Athaliah with being too reasonable of a person, but she probably didn't even recognize Joash, right? She hasn't seen him in seven years. He was a baby and now he's seven years old. So while technically it's not treason at all, right? He has the right to the throne. She cries out treason, treason. We see another indication that she lacks support. If you were ruling over the land and you see someone else being crowned as king, you just go get your army, you go get all your followers, right? And you go wipe them out. But she doesn't. She just starts screaming uh, about treason and tearing her clothes. Verse 15, And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of hundreds, the officers of the army, and said to them, Take her outside under guard and slay with the sword whoever follows her. But the priest had said, Do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, and she went by way of the horse's entrance into the king's house, and there she was killed. So Joash, young Joash, seven years old, he's already been raised by a priest, his uncle, the priest Jehoiada, in the temple most of his life. And one of the first major acts that he gets to see in his life is tremendous respect for the house of the Lord. That even when they're overthrowing an evil, evil ruler, their first thought is the protection of the house of the Lord. So this begins to influence, I would imagine, influence the way Joash uh, thinks about what he's going to be doing as king. Now, he's seven years old. I can't imagine if he really has a good grasp that he's about to rule the land. Plus, Jehoiada being his caretaker, is really going to be doing most of the decision making for a while here. So then we move on to verse 17. Then Jehoiada made a covenant with the Lord, the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went down to the temple of Baal, tore it down. They thoroughly broke in pieces its altars and images and killed Matin, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And he took the captains of hundreds, the bodyguards, the escorts, and all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. Then he sat on the throne of the king's. So after making these oaths to God, right, the, the king is, is swearing to be faithful to God. The people are swearing to be faithful to God, uh, the king to the people, the people to the king. Everyone is making these oaths. Destroying the idolatry that's in the land would be the logical next step, right? If there's temples of, uh, of worship to Baal and, and you've just made this uh, oath to God, it would make very much sense that, of what they're doing next. So they go out and they destroy the temple. They kill the priest and, and they kill him before the altars. In verse 20, it says, so all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet. So was it rejoicing or was it quiet? Well, the word quiet there is actually used throughout scripture uh, essentially to mean at peace. Right. So the, the land had finally been freed from the, the evil grip of Athaliah and they were at peace. Uh, the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. Uh, Joash was seven years old when he became king. So in chapter 12, starting in verse 1, in the seventh year of King Jehu, 
Joash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Now remember, seven years ago is when Jehu killed the Joram of Israel and Ahaziah of Judah, which is what gave Athaliah her opportunity to reign over the land. And that's when Joash was taken. So seventh year of King Jehu of Israel, Joash is now seven years old, and these events are taking place. Verse 2, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all his days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, there's a few possibilities of what those high places were. At an initial reading, you'd think that they were still pagan temples to the Baals, false worship. And that, that may well have been the case. But I would suggest that we consider the idea that they were sim- simply illegal places of worship, still worship to Yahweh, but illegal places. Uh, the the lack of severe condemnation here, um, there's no threat of destruction or wrath upon the land. And only verses back, we see that they went out and destroyed false temples. So it seems that. These high places had the at least strong chance to not be necessarily pagan or um, to Baal, but rather just outside of the temple that God had defined um, as, as a place to worship. Um, verse four, and, and Joash said to the priests, all the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money. And all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring to the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves from each from his constituency and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever dilapidation is found. Well, what damages are we talking about? Again, our parallel passage in Second Chronicles specifies that the money is going to repair the house of God from year to year. So not only is this to bring it up to par to to restore whatever damages there were, but it's to then ongoing maintenance of the, the temple here. The literal word for these damages is the word breach. And in Second Chronicles 24, 7, it said that the sons of the wicked Athaliah broke into the Lord's temple and used the sacred things of the Lord's temple for the Baals. So there was some physical damage from when it had been broken into for the sake of Baal worship. And in verse six, now it was so by the 23rd year of King Jeho- uh, Joash's reign that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. So King Joash called Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, Why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now therefore do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. So we don't know exactly why they didn't do it, but we can take some guesses based on context and what we see. Was it laziness? So in Chronicles, Joash tells them very specifically to do it quickly, right? This is the 23rd year of his reign. I don't know if he gave this command when he was seven, right? It might've been a few years, but we can very safely assume that it had been 10, 15, maybe 20 years since he had asked that this work was done. And if I ask someone to do something quickly and 20 years later, it's not done, Seems like they're being a bit dragging their feet a little bit, I would say. But what about embezzling and greed? One of the things Joash says basically is stop taking the money if you aren't going to do the work. Right. He says, do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for the repairing 
uh, for repairing the damages of the temple. So for all these years, they were collecting the money, right? Decades of collecting money for the repairs, but not doing the repairs. It's also possible that they were becoming complacent uh, or, or maybe conflicting with the people doing the work um, because they agree to turn over the funds here. But then they also just kind of slough off the duty of doing the work in verse eight. It said they agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages from the temple. You'd think they would say, OK, we'll turn the money over and we'll get right on it. But they don't. They say, OK, fine. Here's the money. Go ahead and fix it. So Joash now takes over the repair of the temple, uh, overseeing it himself. So in verse nine, Jehoiada, the priest, took a chest, bored a hole in its lid and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priests who kept the door put all the money, put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. So it was whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest came up. And put it in bags and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they gave the money which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters and builders who worked on the house of the Lord and to masons and stonecutters and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. However, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to workmen, for they dealt faithfully. The money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. Now, I, again, from our previous considerations as to why the priests didn't do the work, I, I would lean towards the idea that they were embezzling or being greedy. Because what steps does Joash take? Well, he puts a secure chest in place that requires the, the priest and one of the king's men to come collect from. The repair money is able to be put directly into the hands of the workers, but it can't go to the hands of the priests. We don't see them um, necessarily spending a lot of time with the money. It's just going directly to the workers. Uh, the secondary items in the temple, uh, the sprinkling bowls, trumpets, silver, trimmers, were going to be important because God required them for the worship in the temple. But it seems that this breach, this damage that had to be repaired was higher priority. The priests still receive their wages, but it's just separate from the, the, the chest that Josh put in there. Uh, the money is kept separate. So it's earmarked for the repair of the temple and they are paid with other funds. Now, we'll take a small pause here in the, the king's narrative and we'll jump over to uh, what happens next, which is included in Second Chronicles chapter 24. Starting in verse 15 of Second Chronicles chapter 24. Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died, and they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and his house. Now, after the death 
of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. Therefore they left the house of the Lord of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. So many of the leaders apparently didn't like the way things had been going since Jehoiada had made all these reforms with Joash. They come to the king, they get in the king's ear. It's also interesting that they seemed to wait until Jehoiada was out of the picture. But they bow down to him, they smooth talk him, and he listens to them. In verse 19, uh, verse, yes, 18, after 18, it said the wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. And then 19, yet he, God, sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not listen. Then the spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him. And at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada, his father, had done to him but killed his son. And as he died, he said that the Lord look on it and repay. So not only does he listen to the wrong influence from these leaders, but he ignores the right influence, the prophets from God. Even the, the, the son of his uncle Jehoiada, the person that had raised him and helped him begin to rule this kingdom and make all these reforms, his own son was killed. Now we can turn back to 2 Kings, chapter 12. We'll pick up after Jehoiada's death, after the idolatry comes back into the land, and into verse 17. Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. Then Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. So the kingdom of Syria, up here on the top right of the map, is where Haziel is coming from. And he makes his way down to Gath, takes Gath, and now he turns to face Jerusalem. So he's almost come around behind uh, the kingdom of Judah now. And I also think that names are important. Hazael means God has seen. Right? So Joash institutes all this idolatry and worship into the land. God even sends him prophets. But then God has seen comes and turns his face against Judah. And then in verse 18, Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his father, fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred things and all the gold from uh, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house and sent them down to Hazael, king of Syria. Then he went away from Jerusalem. So he breaks the oath that he made to God, Joash. Right? Remember earlier on that they he and the people made an oath to God. God sends them prophets and they ignore and kill them. And then he even takes the sacred items from the temple to bribe this king whose wrath is coming upon Judah. Uh, at the end of verse 18 there, it says he went away from Jer Jerusalem. So Hazael, 
He may have already made it to Jerusalem and begun his attack and then turned away after he was bribed. Or he may have been turned away before he even made it there. We do know elsewhere in scripture that Joash is injured by the Syrian army and he dies from those wounds. But we don't know if it was this instance in particular. But it was very shortly after, if not. So finishing up the the story here in verse 19. Now, the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles and of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of the Milo, which goes down to Silla. Now, he was there wounded. Right. We find elsewhere in scripture that he was wounded by the Syrian army, but they go go out to kill him. Uh, For Jazakar, the son of Shimeath and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants struck him. So he died and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In Second Chronicles, we see that they the reason for killing him was because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada, which sounds like a good upright thing that they were avenging the priest. But if David's example is anything to kill the Lord's anointed, um, at least without specific call from God to do so is not something that should be praised. And we see that he's buried in the city of David, but specifically in Second Chronicles, it said that he was not in the king's tomb. So they give him a dishonorable uh, burial. Uh, and further to the point that killing the king is not something we should be proud of. Amaziah, uh, the next king, Joash's son, one of the first things he did after he firmly established his grip on the kingdom was to kill his father's assassins. And so that completes our family tree there. We see Amaziah at the bottom. So then some things to to ponder on very quickly as we finish from the story is what sin did Joash return to? This is something I think we can consider for our own lives. What sin did Joash return to? You may think idolatry. But I would suggest that he did not return to idolatry. When had he been involved in idolatry prior? The land had been involved in idolatry, but he was raised in the temple and he was under the watchful eye of Jehoiada. This was not an old vice of his. Granted, it's our human nature, but this is not something that he returned to do. He didn't fall back into his old ways. He simply let bad influences get into his ear. So the question I think for us is a good question and we can get it almost out of any portion of scripture is what is the idolatry in our lives today? Because it's it's something we need to be very careful of that regardless of how we're raised or how our life has gone, we don't need to just watch out for for old sins. And, oh, before I was a believer, this was my problem and I was struggling with this. Bad influence, right, or or the flesh itself can bring these new sins that seem to come out of nowhere. Joash had no history that we can see with idolatry. And yet this sin flared up and, and became his downfall. There's a story I want to read, very, very short story uh, from a pastor about idolatry. And we've all heard the definition of idolatry before. You know, anything that 
takes the place of God. But I think this story is very uh, interesting and sort of drives the, the point home for us. And this is what he says. I was in Vishakapatnam, East India, a few, year, few years ago. It's out in the middle of nowhere. I was walking down a dirt road and there was an altar with a shrine built and chicken blood and feathers everywhere. There were idols as far as the eye could see. And they worshipped everything you could possibly imagine. I asked one of the pastor's wives who was planting a church in a nearby rural village. I said to her, do you think you will ever come to the United States and visit my country? She said, I did once and I will never go back. And he asks why. And she said, I cannot stomach the idolatry. He says, I'm standing next to an altar where chickens get killed for apparently the chicken god. Thinking to myself, this was not what I was expecting to hear. I said, where are the shrines of false worship and idolatry in our culture? And she said, your God is your stomach and you have restaurants everywhere. Your God is your sports teams and you build multi-million dollar stadiums to house them. Your God is your television and all the chairs in your home are lined up so that your family can gather around the altar and worship that God. So idolatry is very often something that may be a good thing, right? I'm not condemning sports or restaurants or television. But it is something we need to be very aware of, cautious about what we're allowing to consume our time. We can also ask how Jehoiada did in this story. I don't think he plays a flawless part. He didn't work heartily as under the Lord on the repairs, right? At least some period of 10, 15, 20 years, he doesn't get the work done. Whether it was the other priests slowing him down, whether he was trying, we don't know. But it was enough to make Joash say, why haven't you done this? And I wonder if that's where Joash began to maybe think less of Jehoiada. And again, one way or another, you know, we can only do our best when it comes to influencing other people um, and and bringing up, you know, children in in the way they should go. But anyway, you cut it. Joash was vulnerable enough to take bad counsel shortly after Jehoiada left. And again, maybe maybe Jehoiada had been setting a bad example towards the end where he wasn't working. He was uh, perhaps being lax. And so these other people come in and are able to get in Joash's ear. And I would say he seemed angry enough, whether at Jehoiada for being so slack on repairing the temple or just angry enough in general that he kills his son. He kills Zechariah. So finally, the questions that we should ask ourselves, are we remembering daily? We come on Sundays and we remember the Lord Jesus. But that's not going to be enough for us. We're we're much better at forgetting than we are at remembering. That's human nature. And if we don't remember the Lord daily and if we don't stay in the word daily and we're not in prayer consistently, then we, just like Joash, are ignoring the prophets, the, the, the word that God is sending us. We talked about that a lot this morning, right? His mercies are new every morning. There's always something to to find new and to remember daily. Solomon uh, was the, the wisest man and the wisdom didn't preserve him, right? He was the wisest man alive and he still had struggles later in his life. So we know that staying in the word consistently, we never reach a point where we're finally there and we can just relax. And 
do we have leftover high places in our life? Remember at the start it said uh, that they, they, the high places weren't all taken down. So they weren't necessarily things that brought wrath and condemnation as we saw when they returned to the worship. But they were things that uh, had the potential, right? It, it's sort of a, a gateway temple, if you would, right? If these were just illegal places, they may not have been bringing wrath on the land, but they were certainly things that entertained the idea of uh, incorrect worship. So what sort of things are in our life that are taking time away from God, taking away our dedication to God that we need to remove rather than toy with? What liberties are we using that are risky? Now, are we using other people as a crutch, right? Again, it's not explicitly said in the story, but Joash seems to have been leaning on Jehoiada. As soon as Jehoiada is gone, Joash goes off the deep end, right? So are we using other people as a crutch or are we built upon Christ and his word? Uh, a church I used to go to, the, uh, they had a, a head pastor there and that head pastor left and that church broke. People left, fights were not literally breaking out, but dissensions and all these terrible things. And to me, that says they weren't really coming to the church for the right reasons, right? But rather leaning on that person and trusting in them. Are other people using us as a crutch? We have the opportunity very often to be very influential in people's lives, whether that's a child or a disciple, a discipleship opportunity. And how are we setting those people up? Right. Do they always come to us? Do we turn them back to the word of God? Do we turn them to prayer or are we setting people up to falter and be lost when we leave? Right. In our absence, who might get in their ear? The leaders of the land came up to Joash as soon as Jehoiada left and was able to turn him away. So for the times that we have the chance to bring uh, truth to someone, we need to make sure we're giving them the right foundation that. It depends on the word and not on us. And of course, our example to others, Jehoiada not working heartily. And then to consider in our individual lives what idolatry we're most vulnerable to. Again, these things that aren't necessarily bad, but can be when they when they start to take the place of God. So I think the solutions for us are to ask ourselves what consumes our heart, because it should be Jesus. It should be Jesus more often than anything else, which is very hard, which is why we have to remember, because we're really good at forgetting. And what delights our heart? That's the other thing. We shouldn't just be forcing ourselves to think about Jesus. Uh, the scripture says that we should be uh, delighting in the Lord, right? Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. So not only should it be a duty that we're just keeping our mind on God, but it should be our, our number one desire, our delight. Uh, Philippians 3, 8, yet I indeed also count all things as lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So what consumes our hearts? Sure, we go to a restaurant. We may even go to a sports game or watch a sports game or television if we're using those examples. But in what esteem do we hold those things? Paul counts them as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. So the solution is Jesus every day, right? We don't want to have just Sunday morning uh, as our time to uh, remember the Lord. But that needs to be something that consumes us and something we delight in. And uh, I've heard a pastor that spoke on a similar subject. He said, you don't wait until it's a delight. 
right? You repent that it's not as a light and you continue to work towards it. Uh, so it does need to be your forefront of your thought. And in time, it will grow and grow to be more and more of a delight to you. So let's consider that. What are we spending our time doing and how often are we intentionally remembering the Lord rather than just on these Sunday mornings, right? So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for being infinitely gracious and far more patient with us than you need to be. We're not getting anything from you that we deserve. Uh, we're only getting grace. If we've come to accept the Lord Jesus as the atonement for, for what we've done, then we are just recipients of unfair amounts of patience and, and grace and love. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you remember us and help us to remember you. Help us to wake up, set our mind on you, to go to, to bed, setting our mind on you. And throughout the day that each uh, moment we would remember you and we would be aware of the things we're doing and what's consuming our time. And that you would just help us each individually by your spirit Speak to us by your spirit so that we can each know our own individual situations, what changes we need to make, and that we would be obedient to the call that the spirit gives us so that we can change the way that we're behaving and live in a way that honors you and remembers you. So help us to do everything heartily as unto the Lord, being a good influence and being more and more like Christ each day. Help us to remember to remember as we go, and it will change the way that we live our lives. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.